Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. I can't believe my parents support my choice of profession. I told them I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and they laughed at me. When you uh, want to change your hairstyle, there are two choices. Do or die. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's so awesome. So the wife says to the husband, do you want dinner? And the husband says, yeah, sure. What are the choices? And she says, yes or no. (laughs) Choices. That's the theme of all those three things there today. Uh, Choices. And they loosely tie to what we're going to talk about in this message. The only reason they do is because we're dealing with choices. And I've called today's message Decision Time. And that's what Jesus is doing. After everything that we've heard in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to where we're at, what are we going to do about it? And that's the message today. The main point of today's passage is that two true Christians have made the choice to trust in Christ alone for their salvation and... They are showing evidence of genuine conversion. So again, true Christians have made the choice to trust in Christ alone for their salvation and are showing evidence of genuine conversion. Now, Jesus brings his listeners to the point of decision, and this choice to receive eternal life is illustrated in four ways in verses 13 all the way through 27. The choice to receive uh, eternal life is illustrated in four ways in verses 13 to 27. The first way, which we see in verses 13 through 14, this choice is illustrated by two gates. Two gates. The second way that this choice to receive eternal life is illustrated is, it's illustrated in the choice between two trees. We see that in verses 15 through 20. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see the two responses and the two foundations, right? So the choice to receive eternal life is illustrated by two gates. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Heavenly Father, as we approach you today and we approach your word, we do come to it as it is, the very words of God. And I pray, Father, as we deal with a sensitive subject today, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher. Heavenly Father, make the book live to us. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. May we receive your warnings. May we receive your encouragement. May we be obedient to what we learn in your word. May we submit to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Narrow gate, wide gate. That's the first illustration. Jesus' listeners are presented with a choice between two ways, represented by two gates. One is narrow, and the other is wide. The narrow one leads to eternal life in the kingdom of God and the other to hell. Now, picture them, right? You're out at Lime Creek and you're, uh, you're going around and you know how there's some of the trails that you're on and then there's the little ones that shoot off there? And some of you always probably take those, you know what I mean? And then the person that's with you says, stay on the main trail. There could be snakes out there. 
okay, this has happened to me with my wife. <laughs> but picture that, a little narrow path, and that narrow path ends up at a little narrow gate, like a, like a wicket, right? You've seen a picket fence, and it's got the little gate that flips over. And get that picture in your mind. And then get the picture of the wide path in your mind. Uh, the 405 freeway, right, in Southern California. We're talking 10 lanes on one side, right? Super highway, tons of people on it. Narrow path, might bump into Shrek, right? Uh, nobody's on that path hardly. A few go here and again versus the wide 10-lane superhighway. Can't even get on that thing for 45 minutes. And Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Here's a command. After everything Jesus has said from chapter 5 on, now he says, enter. This is a command that Jesus is making to his listeners. A command to make the choice to enter eternal life, to enter into salvation, to enter into the way that is going to lead you to heaven. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who will go in by it. The Bible says clearly that every single human being is born in sin. That's not a question if you've read your Bible at all, if you've read uh, New Testament or Old Testament, right? Um, the Apostle Paul says, uh, he's quoting you know, the Old Testament, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody knows that every human is born in sin. Um, there are people that challenge this doctrine, but let me tell you, uh, the apostles never challenged this doctrine. The early church never challenged this doctrine. Historic Christianity never challenged this doctrine. But there are people that challenge it. Everybody knows everybody's born into sin. And so that's what he's talking about here is this wide path, this 405 freeway with uh, the 10 lanes on each side, people are born on that. They're born on the wide path because everybody's born into sin and everybody's born on the road to hell, right? Have you ever heard that song by ACDC, Highway to Hell? By the way, that's like a satanic initiation if you've ever like really read the lyrics to it, you know, like and with a discerning mind. Um, but that's where people are born is like on the highway to hell, really. So the next time you hear that song, you know, you'll think, oh, wait a minute, this is the wide path that everybody's born onto. Because narrow is the gate, verse 14, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, this isn't saying that it's difficult to be saved in the sense like Jesus did the work for you to be saved, right? Jesus did the work for you to be saved. It's not saying it's difficult to be saved. But what that verse is saying is that there's only one way to be saved. That's what we mean by narrow is the way. There's one way to be saved, right? And where it says that difficult is the way, it can be difficult because it's so exclusive, right? especially in our world today where there are so many different supposed ways to God, right? But what Jesus Christ teaches, what the Bible teaches is the way is narrow. There's one way. There's one narrow path and there's a narrow gate at the end of it. It's exclusive. Now, this can be difficult for a number of reasons. One, because it's so exclusive. Another one is because you might get involved with, you know, difficulty, persecution. You might get involved with... Um, you know, like Jesus says, if I, you know, paraphrasing, he says, if I suffered, you know, you can expect to suffer as well, right? There's another part that's difficult about this narrow path that it involves, like, denial of self. Remember when Jesus says, 
If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So there's a bunch of reasons that this narrow path is the difficult one, right? Now, there's a common misinterpretation of this verse, and maybe you've heard it. This misinterpretation goes like this. I've got to make sure that I stay on this narrow path or I may lose my salvation. Has anybody heard that? It's popular with the Roman Catholics because Roman Catholics believe in their doctrine of salvation. What they believe is that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but that's not enough. You have to complete and see your salvation through by maintaining the sacraments and doing works. So they don't believe in Jesus Christ, faith alone. They believe in faith alone in Christ. They say, we believe it's faith in Christ plus your works. You need the church. You need the sacraments of the church. And you need all these other things. You need to do works in order to complete your salvation. So if you run into a, a, a good, devout Catholic, what they'll tell you is, I'm just trying to make it through the narrow gate, right? In fact, I talked with a gentleman for about two hours one time when I used to work at this hotel in Clear Lake. And he was an excellent man, just a sweetheart of a guy. And we talked about Roman Catholicism, about his, the doctrine he believed. He was actually the first devout Roman Catholic I ever met in my life, right? And really had a conversation with him. And he was evangelizing, and he was talking about um, pro-life. He, was, he gave me a little, one of those little baby foot pins about how you know, small a baby's foot is at like how many weeks. And this guy was all about doing good works. And he told me seven or eight times during our conversation, I'm just trying to make it through the narrow gate. I'm just trying to make it through. And examining what he was saying, he's talking about, I'm just trying to make sure I don't get off the narrow path because in his mind, he could lose his salvation if he didn't maintain what he was doing. And that's not what this verse means. And here's why I say that. That would contradict the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which is all through the Bible. Um, And... So that doctrine cannot be compatible with what the Apostle Paul says when he says, um, for you're saved by grace through faith, which is not your own doing. It's the work of God so nobody can boast. So that interpretation would contradict what's being said here. Here is what I believe the meaning is when you take the context of the Bible. John chapter 9, verse 10. John chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, There's some, you guys want to point her towards, do you know where to go? Okay, okay. Uh, John chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus says this, I am the door. If anybody enters by me, he'll be saved, he'll go in and out, and he'll find pasture. Uh, another translation, Bible translation of that says, I am the gate, right? I am the door. Jesus is saying that he's the gate, right? It's narrow because it's only him. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's narrow, right? Um, That's what Jesus is getting at. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is what is meant here by narrow, you know, path, narrow gate. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul also says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one way. Then he goes on to say, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Now, what does this wide gate, this broad path look like in today's, uh, or in Jesus' day, in the context of Jesus' day? Well, no doubt, remember he said that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, right? We've been talking about that the last few weeks. Through, 
no doubt that if we keep it right in context, that's what Jesus is referring to. There was a sort of righteousness in that day, like the scribes and Pharisees, where your external works and behaviors, um, they thought that's all God was interested in, right? They looked inc incredibly religious on the outside, but on the inside, they were filled with uh, dead men's bones, is what Jesus said, and they were hypocritical. I can see multiple people shivering, and so we'll just cut the air off a little bit because it's freezing in here. All right. So the wide path, the wide gate in Jesus' day, no doubt he's referring to that false external only sort of religion. Also, in Jesus' day, Abraham's descendants, the Jews, they believed that they were all going to be saved just, just because they were descendants of Abraham, right? So that's a wide path. We're all going to be saved just because Father Abraham. You know, you've heard the Sunday school song, Father Abraham. and Yeah, that's how the Jews thought they were getting into heaven just because of their affiliation with Abraham. Now, what does this wide gate and this wide, broad way look like um, today? Well, there are tons of different examples we could have. Um, the broad path of the New Age movement is uh, there's a lot of people that believe that uh, they're going to be, that they're right with God through, through what the New Age uh, movement espouses. And I'm not sure if you're too familiar with it, but essentially the teaching is you can be uh, saved, sort of, I, I wouldn't even call it saved, but you can be, um, come spiritual as this inner potential, this inner energy inside of you gets awakened, right? And you need to have this energy awakened in you um, to become like what you were intended to be. The New Age uh, proponents teach that you are God, but you've just forgotten. And you need to be reminded through experiences and through initiations and, and uh, through different things, um, you need to have a, you'll hear him say stuff like, you need to have a shift. You need to have a paradigm shift, man. You have to have a shift in consciousness, um, and you got to come into, like, who you really are. That's all over in the movies, like that movie Avatar. And I mean, it's all, there's all kinds of movies where this is in it. They'll say things like, I'm spiritual, uh, I'm not religious. Uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth to a new age person. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. If I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, they'll say, that's fine for you, but that's not fine for me. Um, so don't judge me. I don't judge you. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, they'll say things like, I'm sending you good vibes and stuff like that, or let me send you some energy. I always get a kick out of Christians where they, on Facebook, you'll see somebody post something that says like, oh, my cat died. And then um, the Christians will start responding prayers to you. Has anybody ever seen that? And you're like, you're praying to them? Like, I don't mean to, you know, split hairs over, well, hair's not a good illustration. I don't mean to get technical, but you don't pray to a person. That shows that you've like subscribed to this new age sort of thought process where you think you're going to send them some good vibes, right? Also, another sign that uh, somebody doesn't really understand this is they'll send you one of these things in your email. Forward this to 10 people tonight and God will bless you. You don't get it. That's new age sort of thinking. That's not Christian. It's not Christian doctrine. Um, I've gotten one of those from a Christian leader in the community and was like, I send it back to him. I'm like, this is, this is new age, like, this is like occult stuff, man. Uh, take me off of your spam list. There's the broad path of moralism. So first of all, you have the new age movement. You'd be surprised how many people, are, we're so inundated with that culture. And then moralism. Here's what moralism sounds like. If there is a God, he's sort of distanced from us. And the only real thing that he's concerned about is our actions, our behavior. What do we do as far as social justice? You know, God's only concerned in how we behave. It's unfortunate that moralism shows up in so many Christian 
children's ministries, right? That they don't teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just teach them how to behave, right? Here, let me put my kids back there. And when they come out, they'll be well-behaved kids, learn how to behave. Well, they're teaching moralism most times. They're not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as the motivation for their works. They're just teaching, here's good works. You get some goldfish. Or if you do bad, then you don't get goldfish, you know? And like, that's moralism, right? There's the broad path of moralism. There's the broad path of universalism, which essentially says that everybody will be saved. Now, there is a Christocentric version of universalism, and it sounds like this. Everybody will eventually be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, right? Has anybody ever heard that? It's the Christocentric universalism. Everybody will be saved in the end, and they will be saved through Jesus Christ, right? And they'll quote verses like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, the Bible contradicts this because Jesus says that everybody needs to make a personal choice, hence enter in, right? And if you believe in the one that he sent, you'll be saved, right? So the Bible contradicts universalism. There's the broad path today of pluralism. Pluralism, has anybody heard this term? Um, pluralism, you know what plural is, many, right? And so the very basic idea is that there's many paths that lead to God, right? Now, one of the biggest uh, teachers of this philosophy is Oprah, right? Oprah gets a lot of flack from Christians because she says, I'm a Christian, but yet I believe that, you know, Islam and all these other ways are valid ways, new age, you know, to come to the Lord. Um, so that's what you would call pluralism is saying that there are many different ways um, that all paths are valid, that uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Mormons, Catholics, Jehovah's Witness, all of these ways are valid um, as ways of salvation. Now, the Bible contradicts that because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So they can't both be true, right? The thing, you know, that I will say about pluralists while we're here and people that believe, I do think it's great to have dialogue between different people and respect between different beliefs, right? That's a great thing to be nice and respectful to people. But to say that all paths to God are valid is... Or when people say all religions are essentially pointing to the same thing, you know that that person has not studied religions if they say that, right? Because Jesus Christ makes exclusive claims. Muhammad makes exclusive claims, right? They cannot both be true. It's like this. Aaron and I are going to a pastor's conference in October, and we could appreciate your prayer for that. And when we go there, what if I get in my car and I type or I say to my phone, we don't type anymore, can't. Forgot how to type and spell these days. Don't, it doesn't matter. But I say to my phone, Siri, I need to go to the hotel that I'm going to. And then I say, start driving. And then it says, you could take this exit. You could take this exit. You could take that one. You could take this one. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. You know? Can you imagine if your phone did that to you? You'd be like, no, this is stupid. If I want to try to get to a destination, tell me the way to get there. You know? And that's what pluralism does. It says all ways are valid. But Jesus Christ says there's one way to heaven. There's one way. In other words, uh, you can't take every road. You, you can't take every exit to get there. There's only one way to get there. Now, either Jesus is right or he's not. And so that's another issue, you know, entirely if you haven't settled that yourself. But Jesus does not allow for other ways uh, to heaven, right? Now, so those are the broad paths of today. And there's another one that's really um, coming in fast, and it's called progressive Christianity. And with progressive Christianity, it's 
you know, it's, it's come out of the emergent church movement in the late 90s and the early 2000s. The emergent church is essentially like the rock concert church where we stopped preaching. Now we just have conversations. You know what I mean? We don't, we're not dogmatic and black and white about truth, but we want to examine the Bible and we want to see, does it really mean what it says it was, you know, did. Now the, the leaders of the progressive church, uh, progressive Christianity movement, here's in a nutshell, like there's a lot that could be said and, and I have definitely have the gift of saying a lot. <laughs> so I'll try to keep it short. But one of their tenets is this, that when the Bible was written, the apostles, Peter, these guys, it was written so long ago that today we've obviously evolved in our understanding of spirituality so much that we can't take what they say. We have to understand that they're so, you know, we're so much smarter than they were that we need to redefine these terms. Heck, we've learned a lot about science and evolution. We've learned a lot about psychology and psychiatry. So what we need to do now is we need to reinterpret uh, you know, these things that the Bible's been saying. And so they, of course, don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't believe this is the Word of God, right? Um, why I think that is so foolish is because you read the early church fathers, the little bits that I've read, and Jesus' own disciples became pastors of churches. Like, they discipled people in churches, right? And they discipled other pastors. And all of their writings are available. And in their writings, they say... Uh, you know, this is what Jesus taught his people. And so now these progressives, you know, how many hundreds, thousands of years later are saying, we know better than all of them. And it's incredibly crazy. Um, but it's, you know, it's intellectual. You know, today, this narrow path, it's so anti-intellectual, right? I mean, how, how narrow-minded are you to say that there's only one way to God? I mean, you, can you tell me that these sincere Muslims, these sincere Buddhists, these sincere uh, Mormons, you tell me they're not going to heaven, they're so sincere. And so you come off as this, like, people think you're bigoted, and it's like, I've been accused of it a lot. You're narrow-minded. Listen, I'm not narrow-minded. I just believe what Jesus says, you know? I just trust what Jesus says. I've researched the crucifixion and the resurrection, and I believe the evidence. I've researched the evidence for the Bible, and I believe this is the historical Word of God. I believe it for good reason based on archaeology, based on another uh, a whole bunch of different points, a whole bunch of reasons. I believe that this is the truth. And so I'm not being narrow. I'm just trying to tell you what Jesus said, right? Jesus is narrow. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You might say that's narrow and cruel. Well, man, praise God he made it so simple. I'd mess it up if it wasn't that simple, you know? And so how gracious that God has even given us one way. Now, there's also the wide path doctrinally. There are those who add works to the gospel. That's this wide path, right? Um, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, Mormons add works to their, you, you need to do works. Jehovah's Witness, you need to do works. Uh, Catholicism, you need to do works to get in. Uh, there are even uh, Protestant Christians that blur these lines. Then there's also the false gospel that gets taught today that leaves out sin and repentance, Right? This verse, let me read a couple of verses to you that are commonly left out in um, appeals of the gospel, you know, today in churches today. We're talking about the broad path here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Plain as day, right? 
Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So there's a version of the gospel going around today that is just saying, all you got to do is just believe Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live. No, the gospel is you turn from your sin, you repent of your sin, and you trust in Jesus, right? Now, do you mess up as you're going? Yeah, yeah. But I don't practice these things. I'm not committed to these things anymore. People will say, um, I can be a committed Christian, although I'm involved in fornication. It doesn't say that you can here, you know. And so there's a version of the gospel today. Joseph Prince teaches it. His name is Joseph Prince. He teaches this hyper grace is what, it was what they call it. That's what the, that's the label that's been put on it. Where God did everything on the cross. It doesn't matter how you live. It just matters just you believe in him, right? It's a popular doctrine. Of course that's a popular doctrine, right? You know? Let's go to that church. I mean, man, you can hook up with people and you can get drunk and you can, you know, you can even go to a Bible study where they've got beer, man. You know, like, of course, that's very appealing. I've been working on not getting so animated. I'm going to try to tone it down. Uh, <laughs> Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way to death. It seems right to man. Seems right to man to be inclusive of everybody and say everybody's thoughts are valid. And that's, that seems right to man, but Jesus is saying it ends up in death. The narrow way seems so unsophisticated and ignorant in modern life, and true Christians do get accused of being narrow minded. But my response always is Jesus said it, you know, so I believe it. And you have the problem with him, not with me. Right? True Christians have made the choice to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. The choice, two gates. Have you deliberately chosen the narrow way that leads to the narrow gate that is Jesus Christ? Have you entered into that, right? You do it by trusting in him alone. You don't trust that he was simply a good man, that he was a good teacher, and that's all. No, you trust in him as the substitute that died on the cross in your place, that he died to take the penalty of sin upon himself, that penalty that you deserved. And when you trust that, when you say, I've been convicted of my sin, I know I'm guilty in the court of God, but I will trust in the payment that's been made for my sin. I will trust in Jesus Christ, and I'll trust in him alone. I won't trust on the fact that I was baptized when I was young. I won't trust on the fact that I've been through confirmation. I won't trust that my parents were Christians. I won't trust that I was born in a Christian nation, which is actually a pagan nation, if you open your eyes. I won't trust in anything but Christ alone. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, right? Now, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ alone, then you're on that broad path that leads to destruction. Now, you must enter, and you do it by faith. Now, going on, he's going to illustrate this choice to receive eternal life here. Uh, he's going on, and now he's going to talk about false prophets, because there are those that would want to try to get you off of that narrow path and get you back onto the broad path. And they're referred to as false prophets in the Bible. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. 
In 2003, in a town in Massachusetts, Benjamin Glynn and his sister Morgan were rushed to the hospital. Four-month-old Benjamin died on the way, and two-year-old Morgan narrowly escaped death. They were visiting with their dad, one of his clients, at a summer neighborhood party. At one point in the night, 77-year-old Pistis went down to his storage section of his basement to grab a jug of spring water. And he came up and he put some of that water in Benjamin's formula and he put some of it in Morgan's uh, tippy cup. And what Pistis didn't see was the label that was folded over that said arsenic weed killer. Now, how important it is to be able to detect the true from the false, the poison from the not poison. Now, charges were dropped on Pistis, of course, because they did prove that it was a non-negligent accident. True story. When all the jugs look alike, how important to examine them closely. The warning is so important because many Christians today drink up anything that looks like it's Christian. They're not able to tell false teaching from genuine or false from almost genuine. Many Christians today go off of their feelings rather than a critical analysis of doctrines. Many Christians listen with their feelings. They, they hop around any teacher that comes along. If it makes them feel like it's good, then that's as far as they go. And they don't examine a person's doctrine to see what they're teaching next to the Bible, right? They consume the teachings of just any teacher they can find without any biblical discernment. Now, Jesus says, verse 15, you need to beware of false prophets. Now, if Jesus warns about something, this is, a, this is an obvious one, right? If Jesus warns about something, it's important, right? Now, beware of false prophets. So what is a prophet? Well, today it's commonly understood that a prophet is somebody that can tell what's coming in the future. That's um, how it looks today. In biblical times, though, however, it was a term for one who speaks for God in general. Do you remember when Moses was heckling back and forth with God? And he says, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. And he goes, I'll send Aaron. Well, at a point in the book of Exodus, it says that Aaron will be your prophet. Because remember that verse? It's just saying Aaron's the spokesperson for God. And so in biblical times, the term prophet, and I believe how Jesus means it here, is he's just talking about anybody that speaks for God. This could be a teacher, a Sunday school teacher. It could be an athlete that gets up and speaks for God. You know, so many athletes, so many celebrities get into speaking for God these days. Um, anybody that speaks for God. And Jesus says, beware of false prophets. So this would include those that make predictions and those that just teach in general. It's a broad term. So a false prophet makes predictions uh, that don't come true and also one that teaches doctrine that doesn't line up with the Bible. Some, it's important for people to understand, especially if you're new to Christianity or somewhat new to it, that the Bible should be where the doctrine is coming from. And there's this idea that, you know, American church is bought into that there are different ways to interpret the Bible. It goes back to pluralism. It goes back to this idea of there are different ways to, you know, see truth. Now, there are some areas in the Bible 
that are matters of debate that the scholars for thousands of years haven't quite been able to be black and white about. But they, those are few and far between. The basic main doctrines of the Christian you know, faith are in the Bible. They've never you know, been contested all through church history. And we can know black and white what the Bible says, and that's what teachers should be teaching. He says that they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Easy illustration in Jesus' day with the shepherd culture there. Um, you know, they'd lose how many sheep to a wolf, uh, you know, common picture. Notice the insidious nature of false prophets Jesus talks about here. He says that they come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, they're often intelligent, seemingly loving, often approachable, very easy to listen to. They know their Bible really well. In fact, they'll tell you about the Hebrew sometimes and the Greek. And, and they seem to be sincere about what they're doing. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. You know, you, do you mean that God allows false people to join churches and even be in pulpits? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15 says this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Right? So, when you read the Bible, you find out that just as soon as the church was born, false teachers were in it, like right away. The wolves were right there as soon as there were sheep. It's been a problem going on since the beginning of the church. Are there false prophets today? Yes, there are. I want to talk about this stuff for a little bit. And, um, you know, I've been wrestling with this all week and where to go with the message. I started out with a longer, I was going to do a longer piece of scripture, do the other two points. But then, and I've wrestled about how do we talk about this subject? I know as a pastor, it's my job to warn people about things. You know, like I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't warn people about things. Um, but I want to try to do this for the sake of building your discernment, right? I'm going to try to help all of us to just work on our discernment. We need to be able to detect. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Um, I think it's biblical what we're going to do here. There are many uh, in this movement in the church today called the NAR. Has anybody ever heard of that? The NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And that's what it stands for, the New Apostolic Reformation. Within it, there are many self-proclaimed prophets. Um, there are also many self-proclaimed apostles in this uh, movement. Are they real prophets in this movement? Well, they need to be examined biblically, right? Now, so-called Christian television today, and I use that term lightly, is filled with false prophets. TBN, CBN, with the rare exception of a program here or two, maybe, again, I don't even you know, know how many, maybe one. I know Greg Laurie's on TBN, but it's safe to say 90% of the teaching on these channels, these are false prophets. This is false teaching, right? I'm going to give you some names of people that I listened to. This is just one example. I was going to show the video, but I thought maybe that would be a little bit tactless. My, well, 
I didn't think it would be tactless, but my pastor told me that he wouldn't do it. So I just, I'm a man under authority, right? So I won't, I won't do it. But if you want it, I'll send it to you. No, I'm just kidding. But it's hilarious, though, because this video is a 22-minute expose of these false prophets declaring that without a doubt, Trump would win two terms. Without a doubt. He'll have eight years, without a doubt, consecutive. People even questioning him, are you sure? I'm as sure as anything. And now, listen, I don't mind a false prediction if you say, this is just what I think. No problem. I'm interpreting the Bible this way. It looks like this might be the case. Fine. Don't get animated. Okay. But when you say, God told me, you need to be exposed, right? You're a false teacher. And I heard this directly out of the mouths of Pat Robertson, Sid Roth, Kim Clement, Kenneth Copeland, Jeremiah Johnson, Kat Kerr, Robert Henderson, Tracy Eckhart, Mark Taylor, Steve Strang, Mike Lindell. Yeah, the pillow guy. Kevin Zadai, Francis Miles, Paula White, the president, Trump's spiritual advisor. Every single one of them said without a doubt that he would win the presidency two times. Every single one of them, right? Multiple times, multiple occasions. Sid Roth, in fact, I've heard him say that like a hundred times in this video, right? Now, this is false teaching. These are false prophets. If you're into this stuff, I'm telling you, without a shadow of a doubt, they are false prophets, okay? They're being duped if you believe this stuff. Now, many of these, if not all of these, expose this kind of false prophecy because they belong to a movement called the Word of Faith movement, okay? Now, here's what the Word of Faith movement is. I'm going to give you a general brief synopsis of this. It's an attempt at the harmonization of Christianity with metaphysics, mind science. Okay? It's an attempt at harmonizing Orthodox Christianity with mind science. The Word of Faith, I'm going to read a quote. The Word of Faith movement grew out of the Pentecostal movement in the late 20th century. Its founder was E.W. Kenyon who studied the metaphysical new thought teachings of a man named Phineas Quimby. Mind science, where the whole name it and claim it thing originated, was combined with Pentecostalism, resulting in a peculiar mix of Orthodox Christianity and mysticism. Kenneth Hagin, in turn, studied under E.W. Kenyon and made the Word of Faith movement what it is today. By the way, he's accused of just plagiarizing E.W. Kenyon massively in his books. And he says, God just gave us the same revelation. Really? Verbatim? Word for word? Wow. Now, many word of faith prophets also teach what is called kingdom now theology, also known as dominionism. Okay. Now, the kingdom now theology and dominionism, kingdom now theology is a theological belief within the charismatic movement of the Protestant, of Protestant Christianity, mainly in the United States. Kingdom now proponents believe that God lost control, listen carefully, that they believe that God lost control over the world to Satan when Adam and Eve sinned. Since then, their theology goes, God has been trying to reestablish control over the world by seeking a special group of believers known by, uh, variously as covenant people, 
overcomers or Joel's army. And that through these people, social institutions, including governments and laws, would be brought under God's authority. The belief is that since believers are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus, that we all have the authority in heaven and on earth, and we have the power to believe for and speak into existence things that are not. And thus we can bring about the kingdom age. Right? This is a false teaching. And these false prophets, they are word of faith dominionists. And so when they make these prophecies, here's, here's how it works, is they believe that the more faith they say that they have and when they make these proclamations, they believe that that's actually creating their reality. See, the way their theology works is if they claim something with enough faith, then God is obligated to honor that declaration. They often use words like, I'm declaring this. I'm declaring this the year of your breakthrough. Okay, it's because they believe in this dominionism. They believe in this word of faith that my, that, that my words and my faith is a force that creates realities. And they will teach this doctrine called the little God's doctrine. They'll say, um, you are a little God. And what you need to do is you need to use that authority to you know, claim the earth for the kingdom of God. Now, this is a false teaching. This has, they've misinterpreted, among many things, but what faith is. They think that faith is a force, and if I get enough faith worked up, that I can use that force to sort of make my own reality. It's like the law of attraction. Uh, you've heard of the book, The Secret, that Oprah was you know, pushing that book heavy, too, where it's like, if I think things, then I can create my reality. They'll come into my reality. Well, the law of attraction at least says that it's not Christian, but the word of faith has taken that science, that metaphysics, and have tried to harmonize it with Pentecostalism. And that is what you see on TBN and CBN, right? Now, next time you sit and watch that, if you do, hopefully you don't, but if you do, hopefully you, you think about this and you go, yeah, these people are trying to proclaim and you know, name things and, and pretend like that's going to make it happen, right? That puts a lot of pressure on a believer because you look at your life when you're struggling and suffering and you're sick and you're going through things that all humans go through. And guess whose fault that is if you believe this stuff? It's not God's fault because God wants you to have health and wealth, right? Guess whose fault it is if you're sick and poor and going through hardship if you believe in the king of faith? Who's, who's, whose fault is it? It's your fault. And that's why people's faith gets shipwrecked when they get involved with this stuff, right? Because they, you know... It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus teaches. I always like to say to people that believe this stuff, you know, if you can name and claim things, why don't you go into hospice and go start healing people then, you know? Why don't you go to the hospital and go start visiting little kids that are, you know, struggling with cancer, and why don't you just go name and claim that stuff out of them, you know? If you can do this, why don't you go down to, go down to the hurricane victims and go down and, and make things happen, you know? Like, bring them a Rolls Royce and all this stuff. Like One of the biggest... Teachers of this is Kevin or Kenneth Copeland. The guy has $750 million, you know, and the people that are sending him money are going broke sending him their money. You know, it's, this is false teaching. It, you know, and my point of this today is hopefully this is like a line drawn if you've been interested in this stuff. Hopefully you understand that it's not biblical and it's a false teaching, right? These are false prophets. It should be enough that they all say that, you know, Trump's going to get two terms. He did not get two terms. He lost, um, you know, 
It's false teaching. Now, what does the Old Testament say about prophets? Here, Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you want to turn to these passages with me, I'd like to show them to you if, if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. I'm sitting at home like, oh my gosh, this is too much material. Lord, help me. Oh my Lord. We were going to try to do two more points, and we're not going to. I hope this is helpful to you. Listen, I'm not trying to be unkind or mean um, about any of this stuff. I'm trying to be a good pastor to you. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says, have no fellowship of works of darkness, but rather expose them, right? And so that's what we're doing here today. Uh, and you know, I don't do this often, right? I'm not on a hobby horse here. This is what the passage is about today. And so we're really giving it the treatment I think it deserves. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5 if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, okay, so he, he gave a sign of wonder, he did a miracle, it came to pass, and then he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. So this false prophet, he did signs and wonders, and then he started leading people away from what they knew about God. And he says, get, get them out, get rid of them, get them out from your midst. Deuteronomy, turn to chapter 18, please. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. By the way, who's that talking about? Jesus the Christ. That's why the translators capitalized the P on prophet there. <clears throat> Remember in the New Testament where they said, are you the prophet? They were talking about this, and they are talking about Jesus Christ in the book of John. Uh, right here. And it shall be that whomever will not hear my words, which he speaks, capital H in my name, I will require it of him. Now verse 20. But the prophet, lowercase p, who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. In other words, you should not listen to him. Listen, when these prophets said Trump will and God told me, I mean, they, they kept using this language. I was caught up into the third heaven and I spoke at the throne of God and God spoke to me directly. One guy even said so detailed. He says, uh, God told me that I'm actually to be his running mate, Trump's running mate in the spirit. And I'm to go before him and remove all the obstacles and everything else. And <laughs> good job doing that, by the way. You're, obviously, you didn't do your job very well. But they're saying, God told me, God told me, God told me. But it didn't happen. God told you, God didn't tell you. That's how it goes. God did not speak to these false prophets. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Now, a little context. In Jeremiah's day, 
God's people were about to be judged. They were evil, right? And Jeremiah was sent to tell them, you need to turn from your sin, you're evil. And nobody likes Jeremiah, of course, because nobody likes the true prophet that has that message, right? And nobody likes to hear that you're, you're going to be judged, yeah, right? And so that's the context of Jeremiah. And there were a bunch of false prophets telling people, peace, peace. We're going to have another four years. This is God's plan, said that cat cur lady. This is God's plan. Trump has to win because it's God's plan for the church that he will prosper. That, you know, and in other words, peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? People say, well, God can't judge America. It's a Christian nation. America's a pagan nation, and God will judge this place, and he is probably just like anybody else that you read about in the Bible, right? Now, listen in Jeremiah. This is the, that's the context there. False prophets, peace, peace, there is no peace. In fact, judgment was coming. <laughs> verse, verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those uh, who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Right? All the people that do is according to their own hearts. They just do whatever they want. No, no harm will come upon you. Right? False prophets. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger uh, of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his hearts. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. If you have not seen, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. If these people would have really listened to the true prophets, they would have turned from their sin, right? Lamentations 2.14, after Jeremiah. Lamentations 2.14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. See what God's saying right there? That the, what should a prophet be doing? Uncovering iniquity, right? He should be getting people to turn from their sin so God can bless them, right? And that's not what they've been doing. And that's not what these false prophets on TBN and CBN are doing today. I have so much more, but it's, we're not going to get to it because of time here. Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel 22, all kinds of stuff about these guys went forth and they prophesied, but God didn't tell them to prophesy, right? They said, the Lord told me, but the Lord did not tell them. I'll read one more. Ezekiel 22, 28, uh, just one verse. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. You know what that means? Uh, untempered mortar. They whitewashed them. They, they covered up their sins rather than exposing them. And then they said, the Lord told me. The Lord didn't tell you. It's false. New Testament verses about, the, about false prophets. Did you know that in the New Testament, I think it's every book but two, uh, 
Philemon and Hebrews. If I'm, I don't quote me on this. I could be wrong, but I know it's every book except for like two that warn about false teachers and protecting the doctrine, the pure doctrine of the Lord. I won't read all the verses that I have. There's only 20 of them here. Now, not only does, well, in the book of Jude, they're called clouds without water. So it's a drought, and you see the clouds coming, and you're like, yes, it's going to rain. No rain. That's what false prophets are like. You turn on the TV, and you hear their big promises about health and wealth, and you hear about all this stuff like God's going to bless you, and you're coming into this season of victory and all this stuff, and you hear all this stuff, and you hear it, and you believe it, and then here comes the appeal for you to send in money, and you believe it, and here comes the cloud with no rain. It doesn't happen. And you think you're doing something wrong. You don't think you have enough faith. That's terrible, friends. It's terrible. It's not your fault. It's just that this is a broken planet, and you're a broken human. And broken things happen in a broken planet. There's sickness in this planet, you know? And it's all part of this until God comes back. By the way, the dominionists say that it's our job as the church to bring the kingdom here, and things are just going to keep getting better and better and better and better. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says things are going to get worse, 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 worse until Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. We're not here to bring the kingdom according to the Bible, but they don't stand on the Bible. So they make up their own delusional thoughts of their own minds. If you've been struggling with that, wondering why God doesn't give you wealth and health and prosperity and you're thinking it's been your fault, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Now, it may be. You may be doing something that's like jeopardizing like your life. You might be making bad choices. But it's not because you don't have enough faith. If you trust Jesus Christ, even with a mustard seed size of faith, if you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that's all that matters. There aren't people with great faith in this regard. There's just... It doesn't matter if it's great or a little, as long as it's in the right place. That's what matters, right? You'll know them by their fruits, Jesus says, verse 16. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every, every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Jesus says last week, don't judge hypocritically, but do be a fruit examiner. (laughs) Sounds funny, right? You should examine the fruit of people's lives. Now, let me ask, what should the fruit of a true prophet be? Well, one should be that their predictions come true, right? Okay, simple enough. Jesus likes to use common sense, right? A bad tree can't produce good fruit, common sense. That's just common sense. If I say God told me something and it didn't happen, that's bad fruit, right? Now, clear all the delusion out of your mind and all the whatever and just take it for what it is. It's that simple, right? It's that simple. I don't care if you make a bad prediction if you say you think so, but if you say God told you, you're putting yourself on a whole other level of accountability. So the fruit that a false, you know, that a, that a good prophet should be is at least as the predictions are coming true. How about just a believer in general? Because this applies to believers in general too. If you're on that narrow path to Jesus Christ, if you've accepted him, then there will be evidence of this salvation in your life. You'll be producing fruit. And what does that fruit look like? Well, Here's a brief example, Galatians 5, through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If a Christian, if 
a person has come onto that narrow path, and their their faith is in Jesus Christ alone, they will be coming more uh, loving. The fruit of the Spirit is all love. Love is the first thing, and then all the other words after it are descriptions of what love is, right? That's just one example. A fruit of, you know, evidence of true Christianity is you're concerned about the Word of God. You're in the Word. Evidence of true Christianity is you're concerned about brothers and sisters in Christ. You know? Evidence of true Christianity is that it's not just a Sunday thing. Evidence of Christianity in your life is that you're, you look more like Jesus this year than you did last year. I don't mean you've got the long hair. Corey back there, he's starting to look like he's got the Jesus picture. Look. I don't mean like that. I mean your character. You're becoming more like Christ. The fruit of Jesus Christ is being produced in your life. And so true Christians are those that have made the choice to trust in Christ alone. And they're showing evidence of a genuine conversion. I didn't show you this stuff and talk to this talk to you guys about this stuff today to be mean-spirited. I know some people get really ruffled when you start mentioning names about people, but I'll tell you, Paul did it. And he warned his people because he loved them and he cared about them. I love you guys and I care about you guys. And I will have to give an account for every word that's come out of my mouth to you guys. God's going to hold me accountable for every single bit of it. And I felt like I would be... A, a bad pastor to kind of breeze over this because I know I know I know you guys. I know that that some of you guys are, you know, this is nothing new to you. And I know you guys turn on the TV late at night. And I know some people just are new at Christianity. I know when I first became a Christian, anything labeled Christian, I gobbled it up. And I didn't know one doctrine from another. And um, I learned some things that I can't unlearn, unfortunately. You know, God helps you learn them. But Man, you, get, you can get your faith spoiled. As I look at you guys, even though some of you are older than me, not me, well, maybe most of you, uh, not you guys, I look at you like my kids. Aaron and I look at you as like our kids, kind of, not to sound weird or anything, but I mean, you know, we don't have kids. You guys are my family. I'm concerned about you. I want you to turn, Jeff was talking earlier before the service, and yeah, I took it as a compliment, but he goes, you know, you have a such, so trained to think biblically that when we watch, I'm not elevating myself. I learned this from my pastor. But he says, when I turn on, you know, Hillsong TV or something like that, he's like, it's just like cotton candy. It's not meat and potatoes, man. And uh, that made my day, you know. That made my day today. I just want you to be discerning. Father, we thank you for your word here today, God, and bless it to our hearts and help us to walk in discernment. In Jesus' name, amen.